1: I'm Callie Crossley, this week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. They are known as cord cutters, the cable and satellite TV subscribers who started a movement by instead turning to the Internet for entertainment, especially free or low-cost video on demand. Streaming services got a big boost during the height of the COVID lockdown as millions more Americans desperate for distraction willingly ponied up for paid subscriptions. Streaming services took advantage of the captive eyeballs, adding more and broader content behind the paywall. Every drama that I love is on Hulu. Time
2: to have everything you love. Time to have Hulu.
1: This is Peacock. Let's go. It's streaming. Launching. Woo! Premiering.
0: RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is sashaying to its new home on Paramount+.
1: This is your stream. Yes! ESPN+.
2: It exists because you do.
1: Now cord cutters find the streaming cord wrapped around their necks as they are strangled with rising subscription rates and extra fees. Will consumers walk away again? Later in the show, fleeing war, a Vietnamese mother finds community in New Orleans.
3: She has basically made a life for herself as the wife of a professor. She has like a daily rhythm that she goes into, but all that changes once the war comes and the whole of Vietnam is under communist rule. Things change there for her and her family, and they decide to leave.
1: Author Eric Wynn imagines one immigrant family's struggles to stay connected as they resettle in America in his new novel, Things We Lost in the Water. It's our May selection for Bookmarked, the the under-the-radar book club. But first, joining me remotely, Alyssa Wilkinson, film and culture reporter for the news website Vox. Hello, Alyssa.
2: Hi, great to be here.
1: Kevin Westcott, vice chairman of Deloitte, who leads the company's U.S. technology, media, and telecommunications practice, as well as the global telecommunications, media, and entertainment practice. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Callie. And James Jim Wilcox, Senior Electronics Editor, Consumer Reports. Welcome, James. Happy to be here. All right. Well, I'm going to dive right in and start with you, Kevin. Deloitte has just released uh, your new 15th edition of Digital Media Trends. And no surprise, a lot of consumers are subscribing to paid subscription services. So give us the two top takeaways of the report.
4: Probably the two most interesting things this last year, Callie, was that now, consumers continue to load up on subscriptions. 82% of consumers have at least one subscription, but the average number in the household is four. So people have definitely have been loading up. But on the other side, what we're finding is the churn rate in terms of the people who are canceling and then subscribing to a different service also is spiking, and that's over 35% now. So people are switching services very quickly.
1: What was the impact of COVID, the lockdown?
4: What we saw in churn is that before the COVID lockdowns, Churn was running in the mid-teens to maybe 20%, meaning people were trying services and then canceling, though the number of subscriptions stayed steady. So people were subscribing, watching the hit, and then canceling. But halfway through the pandemic and even into early this year, that churn rate doubled or even more than doubled. It's up over 30%. So people are subscribing for the hits they want to watch. But then they're running to the next service when they finish watching that series or that movie.
1: So Jim Wilcox of Consumer Reports, what are you seeing from your consumers? What are the trends telling you? So, I mean, like Kevin said, I think the challenge for the industry is churn, that people
0: can jump in and out of services. Certainly for consumers, we're always in favor of more choice. And there's choice now in the TV market. And that's something that historically has lacked it. But it's also added some complexity for consumers as they now try to navigate their way through a variety of different services to try to get all of the content that they want to watch. You know, it used to be pretty simple from cable. You would just get cable and then maybe you get Netflix. And now you have to look at all the different services to see which ones are going to meet your needs. You know, as Kevin mentioned, people are finding now that they have to subscribe to multiple services and they tend to add up in cost. So a lot of times people thought when they were cutting the cord that they'd be saving a lot of money. And I think what a lot of people are finding is that they're not saving the amount of money that they thought that they would when they first got involved in this.
1: So, Jim, do you think that they're now paying more than they paid
0: when they had cable? I don't think they're paying more, but I think that the promise of cord cutting, and and just to be clear, it's not really cord cutting because people tend to go and get their internet from the same company that had provided them with TV. So they've really traded one cord for another. But I think that the expectation was that you would be saving lots of money. And when these services, particularly the ones that were designed to replicate a pay TV package, they started at around $35 a month for like DirecTV Now or Hulu with live TV. They're all in this $60 to $65 a month range right now. And when you have to stack additional services on top of them, a lot of times consumers are paying close to what they paid, particularly if they had a bundle, because you're also going to still have to pay for broadband. But I think that the good news is that they're probably getting more content that they actually want to watch, even if they're not
1: saving a lot of money. So, Alyssa, from a pop culture perspective, what are you saying as trends for consumers? Are they sort of sticking with even as they understand the pay landscape and what are they willing to just chuck almost right away?
2: Yeah, it's really in flux, partly because lots of different shows and movies have been moving around to different services. So pre-pandemic, we already knew that there was going to be a big shift during 2020 because there was plans to release Peacock by NBC and Disney Plus by Disney. And, you know, HBO Max was going to be this new thing. We weren't really sure what it was going to be. And we knew that there was going to be diversification and that some shows that used to all be, for instance, on Netflix, were going to be now moved out to the streaming service from their studio or their distributor. What's the impact of that? The impact has been really interesting. I mean, a lot of it's just been watching people try to settle into what they actually care about. There's a lot of people who never thought they would Ditch Netflix, maybe, but then discovered that actually they spent 50% of their time watching The Office on Netflix, and maybe they don't want it now that they don't get The Office. I think the winners have been you know, Disney, which just has an incredible amount of stuff, um, that you can kind of just throw on all day, which has been a lifesaver, I think for a lot of parents with kids at home. And then, you know, there's like different services that different people with different interests go for. If you love classic films and you're also interested in prestige TV, well, maybe subscribe to HBO max. Um, if you really want to watch, you know, the enormous number of, um, between shows and movies that have been coming out on Netflix, well, then your subscription dollars go there. But yeah, there's been a lot of movement and there's been a lot of attempts by different services to pick up people by offering some kind of a flagship thing, whether it's Hamilton or, you know, a Pixar movie or, you know, the Ted Lasso, for instance, on Apple Plus. Um, but there's nobody wants to pay for 15 different streaming services. So the jump from one to another is not surprising.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Alyssa Wilkinson of the news website Vox, Kevin Westcott, vice chairman of Deloitte, and James Wilcox of Consumer Reports. So what's interesting to me is that, first of all, in prepping for this story, I discovered there's 300 streaming services. Obviously, I am really out of it. (laughs) I I don't know who those people are, where they are, and who's paying for them. And they must be getting some support because they still exist at this moment. But I'm also very interested, Kevin, in Netflix's most recent report about its losing customers. Some people are calling it video fatigue or streaming fatigue. And this is not necessarily connected to money, as we've all talked about here as being a driver of this, but something else. Are you seeing that in the work that you've done?
4: Well, what we've seen is during the pandemic, when people are in lockdown, the number of minutes of streaming video significantly increased. And I think there is some fatigue out there of just watching video. And I've actually heard that the intent of reducing the number of minutes they watch is very high as we get out of these lockdowns. And I also think, you know, as a parent of a couple of children, when they start playing sports again on weekends and things like that, my household reduced the number. But what I actually find to be interesting is as long as we've been doing research on streaming, the number one reason why people would subscribe was exclusive content. And that makes perfect sense, right? It's a piece of content I can only get there. But during the pandemic, that actually fell to the number two point. And going back to what you mentioned here, is cost is definitely skyrocketed as the most important factor of why deciding. So I think that we have a combination of rising costs, and there is some fatigue out there because people spent a lot of time, significantly more time during the pandemic, just watching video because they had very little else to do in some cases
1: you know, Netflix has set the standard for that. They were out ahead of everybody else. According to the stats at the end of 2020, they had 203 million global subscribers. And at the end, they had lost millions and millions of subscribers. Should this signal something or nothing?
4: What I really see is the trend, and it's really being borne out by the youngest generation, the Gen Zs that we talk to, who are primarily the teenagers in the early 20-somethings, is that video is not their number one entertainment platform. It's games and music are their first two. So what I think that the, all the platforms need to do is think about aggregating all types of entertainment that a household might want. So video, TV shows and movies are important, but streaming music, adding in gaming, maybe it's podcasts or audio books. Thinking about all the types of entertainment that you have in a household. I personally have over 20 subscriptions to different types of entertainment in my household, but I have to go to multiple services to get that. Wouldn't it be much easier for the consumer, and probably much more sticky in terms of the subscription, if I got everything I wanted from one platform? And that's where I think the winners are really going to be in the future.
1: And in fact, Jim Wilcox, you've said that the reason that people liked pay TV back in the day is because they had one bill; <laughs> they weren't all over the place trying to figure out what it is that they were trying to get from here, there, or everywhere.
0: You know, it was simpler. Um, but you know, to Kevin's point, you know, one of the things that I think that will you know really start to see. Is that there are um like a company like an Amazon, and and you know, I think Kevin will will agree that people tend to get Amazon for other reasons and then they enjoy the freebies that come with you know the, the two-day shipping or one-day shipping. But with a company like Amazon, you know, and and even Apple they're starting to become aggregators where you can subscribe to multiple services through that one platform and i think that that makes it a little bit easier for people because they can manage all of those subscriptions you know through the one platform the thing that i think that you know there are two things i think that people are really curious about is you know what happens when the pandemic is over and we return to normal life you know as kevin mentioned a lot of people you know really want to get out and do things play sports go to restaurants and so the entertainment which was really homebound for such a long time is going to be opened up the other is that You know, each of these services is really trying to figure out a reason to keep you as a subscriber. And so, as Alyssa mentioned, you know, they're pulling content from services. Um, I think that they are also looking to create more original content to keep people tied to that service. Um, And so, when they do that and they come up with a real winner, it makes you want to subscribe to that service. Um, The problem with that is that you know, original content costs a lot of money. And so if you see the money that companies are spending now, it's pretty astronomical. And so, you know, they want to be able to keep you tied to that service, but they're also able then to leverage that content internationally. And that's something that a lot of things, like Netflix years ago, would just license for the US. And then they found they didn't have the rights in foreign territories. When you have original content, you can do that, but there's a high cost involved. So I think that for consumers, it you know, it's really going to be an interesting year as the pandemic lifts and then they start making decisions about which subscriptions they're going to keep, because in addition to entertainment, you know, they've, they've really be gotten subscription to a lot of other things that we haven't thought about. So, you know, health and fitness services, music services, um, and even food services. So I think that there's going to be a subscription overload and probably in the next couple of months, consumers are going to have to make some hard choices about what they're going to keep.
1: Well, I can certainly say that my family and I buy different subscription services, so this is embarrassing. We have Amazon Prime, stars Hulu, HBO Max, Disney, Netflix, Peacock, and I'm thinking about Paramount+, Plus. though I'm mad about it because they're putting my HDTV behind the paywall. So I'm just saying that's ridiculous, and we know it, and we're going to make some decisions about getting rid of it. But we have been able to, Alyssa, exist in this multi-streaming services world because we can share the passwords. Now, there's some conversation about not allowing people to do that. And I think personally, that's going to make a huge difference. What do you think?
2: I think it could. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of college students, for instance, who only have access to things because they use their parents' passwords. And um, certainly, you know, my my mom <laughs> uses my <laughs> Netflix account, um, or has in the past, anyhow. Um, you know, but it, a, a lot of this it comes down to the way people always interact with software platforms, which really are what these are at the end of the day, which is that they get used to something, you, you know, something feels weird at first and then you get used to it and it just becomes the normal thing. And the, the fact is that a lot of streaming platforms still are pretty cheap. Like they add up, but at the moment you sign up, they say, Oh, 79, 799 a month, you know, for the next six months, you're like, sure, I have eight bucks. And then you forget about it. Um, So I'm curious to see as people move back into lives where they don't totally center around screens, um, if there'll be some people who are just, you know, forgetting that they were even subscribed in the first place and then it pops back up and they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's a thing that I that I have.
1: Mm. I wanted to ask you the Netflix question. Do you see that as a kind of canary in the mind situation that their numbers have dropped? Because you pointed out that one of the things that they did do, Jim referenced this, is that uh, they began to get some global content. Now, they had to pay for it, but they therefore had a broader category of interesting content for their subscribers. You know, not only some of the hottest U.S. content, the Bridgertons of the world and the Shonda Rhimes, whatever she's doing, but also from around the world, other kinds of content that you might not have been able to find easily anyway elsewhere.
2: Yeah, that one's been really interesting because they've always done that. You've always been able to watch stuff from their international editions, basically, um, in American Netflix. But they definitely have been Promoting that more over the past year. I watched Lupin, for instance, which is a French kind of detective show. But I am used to watching things with subtitles because that's part of my job. And I think there was a little bit of a hill to climb sometimes with convincing American audiences to read subtitles. That's just not something we're so used to. So there's been some dubbed shows that are out there that have been really popular. And then there's also been a few international hits. And some of it's just trying to plug the holes, I think, that have come when major shows have moved off the service and onto other streaming services. But also for me, anyhow, that's really exciting because that means Netflix actually has been investing in movies from Africa and TV shows from South America and things that have a different perspective. And if people cruise across it on their Netflix homepage and say, well, this looks interesting, I'll give it a shot, then I think that's good for everyone.
1: Mm. And I think it also, you know, the whole point is to distinguish yourself in a whole room for everybody's having similar kinds of content. So if that helps, that would seem to draw more people to it. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Alyssa Wilkinson of the news website Vox, Kevin Westcott, vice chairman of Deloitte, and James Wilcox of Consumer Reports. I want to circle back to something that Kevin said about audio subscriptions, and people are now starting to subscribe to that. Here's Apple CEO Tim Cook announcing this month the launch of Apple Podcast Subscriptions.
3: We're also introducing Apple Podcast Subscriptions, which enables you to unlock new content as well as additional benefits like ad-free listening, early
1: access,
4: and much more.
1: Okay, now, Kevin, you're in the end going to end up paying for this. So, I mean, why is he trying to make it sound like he's giving me something?
4: Well, uh, we we do see that free trials or, uh, you know, those types of um, attractive uh, ways to get subscribers actually work. So when we have a free trial out there and people subscribe for a period of time and and as earlier mentioned, people get become accustomed to having that content. So and when we when we survey consumers and ask them for those who are on a free trial, what percent intend to to continue after it becomes paid? It's actually a very high number, higher than you would expect. So once people have access to a piece of content and they want to and they want to have that in their you know kind of in the repertoire of things they do, um, I think that they uh, they become accustomed to it and continue. And audio has actually shown shown a very interesting um, increase during the last year. We've seen it both in audio social platforms as well as podcasts doing very well. So I think audio is an interesting new um, platform that a broader audience has really become attracted to. Um, some of us have been listening to audio you know, podcasts for years, but I think it's got a much broader audience over the last year as people were looking for alternative entertainment.
1: Do you think it can overtake video?
4: Well, I happen to be of one of the older generations in the survey that we do, and we grew up with video first, and I think that that is going to continue. The younger generation, the Gen Zs that we looked at this last year, really surprised us with their preferences. So I think it will be interesting to see as they get out of high school or out of college, do they revert towards a, a video first or do games and music and podcasts still dominate their entertainment needs? So it's very interesting. The millennials did not change. As we watched them age, they went from teenagers to becoming, you know, uh, in the workforce and obviously a lot of them getting married and having children, their behavior stayed the same.
1: Jim, are you seeing that? What do you think about the impact of audio subscriptions on the consumers that you represent? You know, I think that it is generational.
0: I have a 16 year old son who never watches TV. Everything's either, he's either playing games on his computer or he's watching stuff on his phone. Um, I think that podcasts um, are, are, you know, something that, that really has taken hold. And I think that that part of it's gonna grow. You know, to me, one of the, one of the real differentiators in terms of the whole subscription business um, is really whether or not you need live TV. So if you need live TV, then you have to replace what you typically got from cable. And that's one of the you know, YouTube TVs or Hulu with live TVs. But if you don't need that, you can really pick and choose in a way that you never were able to. So you can, you know if you're a fan of uh, you know, British TV fair, you can get Acorn. Um, there's a lot of niche services that will appeal to smaller um, you know, groups of people. But if you're a person who needs live TV and you can't get it with an antenna, you're going to have to turn to a subscription service that's going to cost you probably fifty or sixty dollars a month. So that's a little bit different. Um, my son really gets all of his news. He's on Reddit. He's you know looks on YouTube. He's he's using his phone as his primary device. And I keep waiting for that change and so you know to change and so far it hasn't. Interesting. Alyssa,
1: what about you? What do you think?
2: I actually teach college students as well. So I and I've been doing that for 12 years, which means that when I I'm an elder millennial, I'm 37 and my first batch of students were kind of on the end, the other end of millennials. And now we've transitioned to Gen Z. So it's been really interesting to Talk to them about culture and their viewing habits and it definitely was true 10 years ago that i could name a tv show there was usually one or two that everyone was watching um and we could have a conversation based on that and that has not been true for a couple of years at best uh maybe like a TikTok um creator or something like that they're they're much more tuned into all of that Um, And that's been really interesting and enlightening. It's also TikTok still scares me a little bit. So I'm trying to get into it so I can keep up with that, but also to understand how their viewing habits are changing. And it's kind of funny, actually, when you put it up against a streaming service that did not at all uh, succeed last year, which is Quibi, which was supposed to grab the (laughs) short attention span content and put it on people's phones. But it had more of a TV content uh idea behind its creative process where there's like movie stars and there's stories and they're episodic and it just bombed it absolutely bombed um right out of the gate and became kind of a running joke and you know there's a lot of reasons that that probably happened but certainly one of them is that there's something about the actual material that's being delivered to, you know, Gen Z through phones and through these different delivery mechanisms that is different than what we think of as television with a story or, you know, even reality TV.
1: Do you think that that might have worked if their emphasis had been on audio and gaming?
2: It's certainly gaming. I mean, gaming also works for older people, too. I think there were a lot of people who um, there's some evidence that people game on their phones to kind of stem off anxiety and there was a lot of anxious people trying to do that over the past year so i think that there's some diverse streams of content that could have come through something like quibi that had so much money behind it that might have actually been able to turn out content but it felt like a very old idea of what people want to watch on their phones but in a package that was supposed to imitate something that's much more new and fresh
1: so I'm going to ask a question that, Alyssa, this may be more in your bailiwick than other people, and really none of us are experts, but I'm just curious at your response. What does it mean if we have major content? Now, Alyssa, you reference teaching and people not knowing all the pieces of things, all the stuff that you would reference, because nobody is watching the same stuff. So what does it mean if all of this information is behind a paywall, culturally? What do you think it says?
2: I mean, there's a couple things there. One is that there's so much stuff that we don't have common platforms to talk about. We don't have a lot of common things to talk about. And on top of it, the whole concept of streaming and the reason that streaming is different from subscribing to cable is that it's on demand. So I can watch it whenever I'm not watching it in the same time frame as everyone else and once in a while a show kind of hits and people are watching it together i think of like one division or the mandalorian on disney and people kind of talk about it from week to week but that is now the exception and not the rule and even as recently as game of thrones that wasn't true and it means that the viewership is lower and there's just not as much common point of conversation and on top of it it is behind a paywall which means a lot of people are automatically going to be locked out of that so I don't know what that means on a grand cultural scale, but I don't love it. I think it's good for us to have things to talk about in common, and we're trying to find those wherever we can, and it's just becoming more and more granular and more and more scattered. What would you
0: say, Jim? So as we were talking about this, the thing that occurred to me is that we're only talking about subscription services, and part of the fastest growing part of the business right now are advertising-based, quote, free services. So there are dozens of them now. And so even companies that have a paywalled service are looking at ways once they've sort of hit their subscription uh, numbers, they're looking for ways to build it beyond those people who are willing to pay. And so I think that we'll continue to see services that like HBO is about to launch a free ad supported version of its service. Peacock has that. So I think you'll see some tiered services, you know, from a social standpoint, I'm old enough to remember the term of talking around the office water cooler where there was Destination TV, I guess is what you would call it, where everyone talked about a show. So a Friends was on or Seinfeld or something like that. There was just something in the cultural zeitgeist that just made everyone talk about that. We're far more fractured these days in terms of what we watch. There are some things, as Alyssa mentioned, that you get a majority of people talking about. But I feel like there's just sort of a social interaction that we lose not having that commonality of a
1: shared experience. And what say you, Kevin?
4: Well, I'll agree on the ad-supported aspect very much so. Last year was the, the year of ad-supported. Prior to last year, less than a third of the, of the, the consumers we talked to were using ad-supported, and that basically doubled uh, during the year. As for the cultural aspects, I have not really done a lot of thinking about that, but there was a commonality. Um, I, I grew up very much the same time frame with appointment TV. So, you know, Thursday nights at 8 o'clock, we had to be watching television. And the next day, you could talk about those episodes in, in the office or with your friends. Um, I, I see that only now with some of the, you know, let's call them the streaming blockbusters, the ones that everybody is watching. Uh, but I do think that we've, you know, we, we've we've given up that commonality for massive choice. I mean, people always ask me who's winning the streaming wars, and what I always say it's the consumers because the consumers have all these all this choice, and too much choice can be can get confusing but I can find niche content that interests me at any time. I'm actually watching 10 and, 10 and 12 year old uh, British TV shows right now that I found fascinating. My kids think I'm nuts, but you know, it's, it's a niche piece of content that I really enjoy. So I think the consumers have got a lot, they've gotten that choice, but we have lost that kind of common ground in terms of you know what, what was on at eight o'clock last night type of uh, discussions.
1: And Kevin, do you think consumers will continue to be in in control if price is a factor that continues to be?
4: I think consumers, you know, the the ease of switching today is probably a detriment to the services, but a benefit to consumers. We can all remember probably trying to cancel or change our pay TV subscription 15 years ago. And the questions were, have I fulfilled my multi-year contract? I need to return equipment or have a truck rolled to my house. Now it's a couple mouse clicks. So it's, you know, I, I think consumers will continue to have that. The question then becomes, who wins? Is it the most content? Is it the best price? Is it the options of taking ad supported? Is it the platform with the vast majority of all the content I want? And that's actually where I place my bet. And as I said earlier, that platform that can offer me video, music, games, digital books, all these things, that's where I'm gonna gravitate to because I do like that single bill concept But I can also, within that single bill, make other trade-offs within there. So I think that those are the platforms that will win. But I think as long as consumers continue to have this choice, and it's a decision of where do I want to spend my money? And I think that's also, you know, not being forced to buy, quote, a bundle is a a great thing for consumers.
1: So I will note um, a story in Variety that uh, Disney is slashing its linear TV in Asia with an 18-channel closure, says the headline, shifting all of its focus To Disney Plus. Is this something significant that we should all be paying attention to that will have some impact on these shores? Kevin?
4: I think that all we have to do is look at the amount of content that's now being produced direct for streaming. So I think that that trend is definitely there. We've seen this for a while. It started with some of the earlier streaming platforms commissioning their own content. But now the large platforms that are owned by the studios are producing content with the intent it's going to streaming first. That is its destination. And with the penetration of streaming in the United States being over 80% and pay TV being quite a bit less these days, I think this, is, this isn't this is just the trend that happened during the pandemic. I think this is permanent. I think streaming will become the dominant source of content for folks, but I do expect to see a diversification of the business models in the streaming side.
0: Jim, how do you respond? I mean, something very similar. Sometimes it depends on the type of company that you are you know, with a company like AT&T, with their streaming platforms, it's it's a small part of their business. Their business model, like Amazon, is really something else. And so it's just another way that they can keep you tied to that company. And hopefully, you know, you subscribe to their cell phone service or you buy stuff from them. Those companies are going to be a lot different from those, like a Netflix, where their whole business model is based on streaming. So I think that we're really in an interesting period of experimentation, both by the companies in this business and consumers, where companies are trying different types of services. They're trying different types of offerings. You know, is it going to be free with ads? Is it going to be a subscription service? What's the right price to get people to subscribe to a service? And consumers are kicking the tires on multiple services, trying to see which ones really meet their needs. So I think for another year, we're going to see a lot of experimentation going on. And, you know, a lot of companies, it may be that streaming is just really only a small part of their business. They may decide that the escalating costs really aren't worth it unless there's another reason to keep people tied to them. So I just think it's going to be an interesting year for both consumers and businesses as they try a lot of different business models to see which ones stick. Alyssa, you got the last word.
2: (laughs) I, I agree with that. And I also think what is true is that Millennials are moving into being the, you know, kind of the middle section of the market and millennials are proven to love subscriptions to things. Um, It's nice to have a fixed cost and know that you're going to get X things for that cost. And I think the sea of streaming options right now is really bewildering and having a nice curated set of things to buy is great. And it'll differ from cable in that it will be on demand, but it will still be basically us moving back towards that. At the same time, all of the niche services really are a boon to, you know, I mostly cover movies and services like the Criterion Channel and Moopy are super popular with film people. And that will never be a majority of the market, but they will be very excited. The same people who will also pay money to go see a movie in an art house theater are going to pay 10 bucks a month to have access to world cinema. So those aren't going to go away, but there definitely will be, I hope, just for my own sanity's sake, some kind of compression in the middle so that we know what we're getting and we're paying one bill.
1: Well, I thank all of you for this very fascinating and sometimes
2: infuriating conversation for me. (laughs) Um,
1: But thanks for explaining uh, this very confusing landscape. I appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks for having me here. Alyssa Wilkinson is a film and culture reporter for the news website Vox. Kevin Westcott is vice chairman of Deloitte, who leads the company's U.S. technology, media, and telecommunications practice, as well as the global telecommunications, media, and entertainment practice. James Jim Wilcox is senior electronics editor, Consumer Reports. Coming up, when we meet Hong, she is leaving behind all that she ever knew, in a desperate move to keep her family together. Eric Wynn's novel, Things We Lost in the Water, is a poignant story about loss and acceptance. It's his debut novel and our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. New Orleans natives are typically thought of as descendants of the Africans, French, and Spanish who arrived on the Gulf Coast in the 17th century. But for nearly 50 years, the city has also been home to a community of Vietnamese immigrants who have added to the city's ethnic gumbo. Eric Nguyen gives us an intimate look at that community through the fictionalized lives of a mother and her sons in his debut novel, Things We Lost in the Water. Eric Nguyen is editor-in-chief of DIAcritics.org, the online journal and blog of the Diasporic Vietnamese Artists Network, or DVAN. And Eric Nguyen joins me now from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Under the Radar. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you. Let me start by saying I love this book. Love, love, love. Love it. So good. So congratulations to you. Thank you. I like to uh, give my authors a chance to describe their own work. Um, So how would you describe your novel?
3: I would describe my novel as a family saga that um, shows a family of Vietnamese refugees fleeing Vietnam after the war, settling to New Orleans, Louisiana, and how they cope with their new environment while also trying to remember their old homeland between 1978 to 2005 when Hurricane Katrina comes.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, why did you want to write this story?
3: Um, I first met the the Vietnamese community in New Orleans about, I would say, eight, nine years ago. And I just learned so much about them, what they've been through. At the time, I was trying to write something more autobiographical, something about my own family, um, but I couldn't really get to it. And learning more about this community, I saw a lot of similarities to my own family, but also something that I'd never really seen before, um, mainly Vietnamese Americans in the South. And I thought that it would be a great story to tell. It was a story that wasn't told a lot before, and I wanted to highlight this community of resilient and strong people.
1: So tell us about the main characters, um, whose names I'm going to butcher right now, Um, Huang, Tuan, and Ben. Okay, so Hung, (laughs) she's the mother
3: of this family. She is about in her late 20s when she flees Vietnam before she has fled Vietnam. She has basically made a, made a life for herself in Vietnam as the wife of a professor. She has like a daily rhythm that she goes t- into, but all that changes once the war comes and basically when the South Vietnamese loses and the whole of Vietnam is under communist rule, things change there for her and her family and they decide to leave. Dum is the first son um, He was born in Vietnam. He has memories of his father, of his life there. Um, and once he gets to New Orleans, he's trying to deal with that loss, um, as well as trying to fit into this new American life that he has. And the third character we have in the book is Ben, or has as he later goes by, Ben. And he was born in a refugee camp, so he has no recollection of what Vietnam is. Um, all he really knows of is New Orleans, of America. And his story is of learning of his past, but also trying to become his own person. He really sees himself as this independent kind of person and trying to pave his own path for him.
1: So let's start um, with how the family ends up um, in New Orleans, how they escape from uh Vietnam, I'd love you to read the scene on page thirty. When the time came to leave, Hùng
3: didn't believe it. That night, an old man with a dirty beard arrived at the house. They packed a suitcase, and Kong paid the man. They followed him into the jungle. The old man, who must have been at least fifty, ran like a teenager, and they tried to keep up with him, though the thick, moist air that made it hard for Hoom to breathe and run and carry Thum at the same time. A storm was coming. This was why it was so humid. Was it safe to go into the water now? Thum cried, and Hung had to cover his mouth. Please be quiet, Thum. Please, she begged. He cried louder, and she felt his hot breath on her palm. When there was a sudden noise, she nearly let go, but didn't. They all stopped running. The insects stopped their singing. The birds stopped their calling. It was the first time she had ever heard complete silence in the jungle. It sounded like a gunshot, said Kong after a lengthy pause. Are they after us? Then, in an accusatory tone, Kong yelled at the old man. Are you one of them, old man? Are you ambushing us? The yelling made Thung cry louder. The old man yelled back that he would never do anything like that. He said he was a man of his word, that he'd served for years in the South Vietnamese Army. The two men argued as whom tried to make out the figures. She began to walk toward a shadow she thought was Kong, but approaching it, she saw it was a tree with its top chopped off, like it was struck by lightning. The loud, sudden noise repeated, and everyone went quiet again.
1: That was my guest, Eric Nguyen, reading from his new novel, Things We Lost in the Water. Well, I tell you, that um, you really get a sense of of so much that was at stake for all of them and her fear and the situation that faced so many people. Those who know their history will know that um, the characters that you created there became known as the boat people because they escaped by boat, reached uh, America, uh, and there was lots of controversy about, you know, who to let into the country. You know, should they be here? it was It was a lot uh, going on. So their leaving was fraught, and their coming to America was fraught. And it's through those scenarios that they then try to, you know, make a life for themselves in America. And to your point earlier, um, the immigrant story in Louisiana uh, is not one that people knew. I think they began to know it a little bit more after Katrina when they discovered there's a whole community uh, living here. And, um, Eric, the reason that people, many people settle in Louisiana is because the landscape and the fishing um, was something that they could do that was uh, very familiar to them from Vietnam.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um the Vietnamese community there, a lot of them, especially the the older generation, they work like in fishing and shrimping, um, basically down in the Gulf, um, getting food. Um, they also worked um, I guess, in food preparation. There's like a good food scene there and there's like a blend of um, I guess like that Cajun Creole Mm -hmm. food that you know of, of Louisiana, plus their Vietnamese heritage. So that goes along with like the food um, gathering um, economy down there. Um, And then also like just in the community itself, the Vietnamese community has, um, I guess, community farm there, and they grow a lot of crops that are part of Vietnamese cuisine. So I think the industry there. And the weather, the climate was really favorable to the Vietnamese there um, that settled. So it was like home already.
1: Now, you know, when I started reading your book, um, I'm, you know, I know it's a novel, so I'm reading along. It's great. And I'm thinking to myself, are these places real? So I went down a whole wormhole just looking up the community of Versailles, which is real. That's in your book. Your characters are fictionalized, but it is real. And... So really, this is, um, it's almost like a historical novel in that. I mean, you're not calling it that, but in terms of the setting and what happened and where people lived in that community and what that community stood for and what the church there stood for, it very much is.
3: Yeah, definitely. It was part of my research when I was in New Orleans. I visited New Orleans a lot when I was in grad school in Louisiana, and there is a whole community there. At first, I was really surprised to find it there because you um, don't really associate Vietnamese people with Louisiana, but they have a whole community there. They settled at first in Versailles, which, well, it was Versailles arms apartments. Um, it was government housing at the time that people were provided with um, to get on their feet. Eventually, Versailles did close down and people. Moved into like the suburbs more into like their own homes, which is where we, lo- we see a lot of Vietnamese now. Versailles no longer exists, it was closed down. Um, but the Vietnamese community is still there, the church is still there, um, everything is still there. It's just really evolved from the first time that they settled down in Versailles into something that they're more part of the New Orleans community. Um,
1: just like anyone else. Mm-hmm. To be clear, uh, where Versailles and where this community generally is is something known as uh, New Orleans East. Which yes. I, some I have people in New Orleans and Louisiana, but I didn't know about New Orleans East. First learned about that through the Yellow House by Sarah Broom. Don't know if you're familiar with it, but it won yes. it won yes. the nonfiction um, award for the National Book Award in 2019, and as she wrote, of her family, nobody even knew that it existed because it was 15 miles from the French Quarter, just to put some some uh, parameters for people in their mind, geographical parameters. Uh, and so you're way out from where people think of, quote, New Orleans, uh, both in for her family and certainly for this Vietnamese community. So to, to some degree, people who are in that space were quite isolated from the rest of what we know as New Orleans.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, New Orleans East is a kind of, I would say a lot of people feel like it's forgotten. A lot of people that I've talked to from New Orleans East feel like it's a forgotten part of the city um, because it's just kind of out there. Like even if you drive from like the French Quarter into New Orleans East, like it's a very different feel. It feels like you're in a, like even a different city, a different town because like the landscape's totally different. Um, and I think Sarah Broom's book, The Yellow House, is a very good introduction to that area. She describes it perfectly, in my mind, um, of what it is to live in New Orleans East in this kind of, um, I guess, forgotten place, a mm-hmm. place that's kind of bare bones. Um, and I, I feel like I hope... I hope that my book kind of adds to the literature of that place because people do live there. It is part of New Orleans, like the city proper that people again, always forget about or don't even know about. Uh, and there are a lot of lives there that need their stories told. So mm. I felt like this is my contribution to that community um, by showcasing, like there are people who live out there.
1: Oh, definitely. No, you, you made your point. Well, so your the title of your book is Things We Lost in the Water. And in fact, your story is framed by water all through it. Um, the Versailles community that we were just talking about is located near a part of the bayou. Um, later on in the book, the pool plays a part, a major part for one of your characters. And of course, the water bringing um, all the family to New Orleans to begin with, um, out of Vietnam. So why water? Why, why was water uh, such an important symbol.
3: Um, I think for Vietnamese people like water is a very important symbol. The word for water is also the word for nation. So like it's already ingrained in our language that water is important. The whole country is like basically on the coast. Seafood is really important to Vietnamese culture. Um, but then it gets its meaning kind of doubled, um, When you talk about the Vietnamese refugees, the boat people who escaped by water, because water was a way to save themselves, to escape from this oppressive regime. At the same time, water can kill you. A lot of people who tried to escape by boat from Vietnam died at sea. So for Vietnamese refugees, I think it's kind of part of our cultural memory that Water, yes, is important, but water can also kill us. Um, I think that meaning is kind of doubled even more. When we talk about Louisiana, Louisa is a state that is really dependent on like the water at the Gulf. Um, we're talking about the shrimp industry, oysters, crabbing. That is very much part of the economy. It feeds people, so it's kind of a nourishment literally, and then nourishment to bring in money. Um, but at the same time, as you know, there's Louisiana's at at water's mercy. There's hurricanes. Um, there's erosion. It's losing land. Places are getting destroyed because of storms that have water. So I think I was trying to explore that kind of duality of water, something as life-giving, something as essential for survival, but also something that can kind of kill you if something really bad happens.
1: So the title is Things We Lost in the Water. Who is we and what do you think was lost? I think for the book, it was
3: definitely my main characters, the three main characters, the mother, two sons. Um, They've lost basically a country through the water by escaping I see, Um, but I think they also lost part of their family. I mean, like a father or husband was left behind and with that a history um, and I think that's what all three of them are trying to grapple with, is that loss of history of family and trying to make something new in their new environment. Um, And I feel like that's also like kind of a metaphor for Vietnamese Americans, Vietnamese refugees and immigrants, um, when they left Vietnam on boats like my parents did, they lost, like my characters, a country, a whole way of life, people who were, like once doctors or lawyers um, in Vietnam came to America that start at the bottom being janitors, factory workers, um, so basically they lost everything everything of their life and have to start over again. Mm -hmm. So I think Things We Lost in the Water really encapsulates what I see as something that's integral to Vietnamese diasporic history after the war.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Eric Nguyen, author of a new novel, Things We Lost in the Water. So what we generally read, because it's true, uh, when we uh, read the stories of immigrants and settling into America, trying to figure out who they are in this new place, it's always uh, a question about assimilation. I know it's a dirty word for a lot of people. But in your book, it's very interesting over the years because you note the book is divided into five parts and each part advances the years and you get to see how the family is more and more to your point, integrated into New Orleans. I mean, they're Vietnamese, but but now, um, Hong thinks of herself as a New Orleans person, as she should, and she's American. So, what do you, how do you, how do you feel about that assimilation? I, I mean, you uh, presented it beautifully and matter factly, because that's a part of the process. But I wondered emotionally, how did you see it? I think. Is kind of a double edged sword,
3: if you will. I feel like assimilation is something that happens, something that, especially for younger people who are immigrants or the children of immigrants, it's just something that they do to fit in and create their own identity as like these hyphenated Americans. Um, but I also feel like something is like always lost in assimilation, especially in terms of not only culture, but the stories of that culture. Um, I feel, for example, like one of my characters, Ben, he's become so assimilated in a way that he adopts like an American name to call himself that he sees himself as, Ben. Um, But with that, he kind of loses that story of how his mother and his brother fled Vietnam in the first place. And it's something that he does struggle with, like at the later parts of the book when he's trying to find that reconnection somehow with his culture, with his lost father. So I think on the one hand, assimilation is something that you do to survive and also create like these new identities. Um, I, I want to like emphasize that that sense of, that sense of agency in that, mm. that assimilation could also be a kind of empowerment of creating like this new identity for yourself, um, which I feel is like, can be very powerful for a person. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also feel like you do lose something, assimilation kind of necessitates you lose something, and that something might be hard to get back, or might be lost forever, so I I feel uh, it's like a mixed feeling that I have when it comes to assimilation, because again, you get so much out of it, but then you also lose so much out of it, I think for a lot of Immigrants, a lot of children of immigrants, it's always that balancing act between how much you can stand to lose versus how much like you want to gain.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think we mentioned earlier in our conversation that some of the young people, particularly the second generation, for sure, and, and more, have moved out of uh the New Orleans East from this what was tight knit community into other parts of the city as they should. And some of that assimilation has uh, drawn a lot of attention because um, the foods of New Orleans have embraced Vietnamese traditions like this bake shop, the Dong Phong Bake Shop, that has been noted by Gourmet Magazine and others for the best uh, French bread, which, you know, Goes into making banh mi, and of course, it also makes king cakes, which is very traditional in New Orleans. So you have that mix going on. Um, there are now people serving on uh, city council. There are local TV anchors. Um, there are the presence of, of the Vietnamese community is as everybody else is there. It's just now um, someone coming in sees a very different thing than than. Um, they might have back in 1979, 1978, um, when when people first started coming in, in big groups?
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, the Vietnamese population in New Orleans has definitely had, like, been assimilating within the last couple of, like, probably a decade or so, um, especially with the younger generation who basically grew up American. They learn English. They get education. They move out not only into other parts of the city, but other parts of the country. Um, And then they might come back. Some might just stay in the city and they contribute in very different ways. Like you said, um, foodways in particular, there's a lively, I would say, Vietnamese fusion cuisine scene down in New Orleans where uh, people are mixing Vietnamese heritage foods with like the
1: local Cajun Creole, foods that everybody But you know loves. Eric, some people hate that fusion. They hate they hate that. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like that. They don't like that's a dirty word for a lot of people. <laughs> just want to point yeah. that out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um yeah,
3: definitely um those changes I feel like some people will like, some people will not like. I feel like that's just a natural evolution when you have like different a diverse population among each other. They like to try different foods from other cultures and like mix things up. I think it's very natural though.
1: And finally, what do you want people to take away from the book? I think I want people to take away that Asian
3: Americans belong in the South. They are part of the South, like I just said. I also want people to take away, I guess, the Vietnamese-American experience um, of what was lost, but also what was built. What was built was a community, new identities, new ways of living. Resilience. I want people to take away that strength of the Vietnamese American community and what they've been through, particularly the Vietnamese American community in New Orleans and what they've been through.
1: Thanks for joining me.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a really great discussion.
1: Eric Nguyen is the author of Things We Lost in the Water, his debut novel and our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at GBH.org News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and engineered by Dave Goodman. Angela Yang is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.